The heavier the elements get, the more likely they are to be unstable, to be radioactive, and fall apart at the seams, until they're no longer the atoms they used to be. You could almost say the same thing for the periodic table itself. Here in the table's final row, so far, the patterns we've come to recognize in various chemical groups and neighborhoods start to break down. For instance, as you descend through the alkali metals, each element reacts with water much more strongly than the last. Lithium floats on water's surface, fizzing around like a little motorboat until it disappears with a comical pop. Sodium acts similarly, but it can also burn with a sputtering orange flame. Potassium floats too, but immediately ignites in a burst of purple, sending sparks flying and ending with a much more considerable bang. Rubidium is the first of the alkali metals that could actually sink in water, but in practice, it'll almost certainly explode before it can ever be fully submerged. And as for cesium, well, Michael Caine would be quite startled indeed by the magnitude of that blast. So naturally, you would think that francium, the element at the very bottom of Group 1, would be a truly bombastic pièce de résistance. And yet, that's not quite the case. The francium atom is so big, at least as atoms go, that peculiar things start to happen. Things that Einstein called relativistic effects. Its outermost electron travels at such great speed, faster than one-third the speed of light, that the usual rules of physics start to break down. Francium actually holds on to its valence electron a little more tightly than cesium does. Honestly, though, that's all a bit moot for our demolition purposes. Much like other recent elements, francium is so very rare that collecting a big old chunk of it would be highly impractical. And it's so highly radioactive that even if you could, it would melt your face off well before the sample ever touched the water. That sets a pretty good standard for our final lap of the periodic table. The territory may have familiar contours, but we haven't been here before. Now more than ever, we should proceed with caution. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we'll have our people look at Francium. Even though it's not quite as explosive as cesium, and not quite as rare as astatine, Francium does have some notable distinctions of its own. It has the shortest half-life of all the naturally occurring elements, approximately 22 minutes. It's also the largest of all the atoms, although element 119 will probably be bigger if we ever manage to discover it. And it was the last element to be discovered as part of a natural sample. 
Dmitry Mendeleev himself kicked off the pursuits of the elements in 1879, when he predicted the existence of Ecosesium, occasionally referring to it as Dvirubidium. Scores of scientists joined the chase, including Oreo Hulubej and Fred Allison, but it wasn't found until 1939. Actinium had been discovered four decades earlier, partly thanks to work done by the French chemist André-Louis de Bierne. That is a story for another time, specifically two episodes from now, but the element held his fascination for the rest of his life. Actinium is tough stuff to work with. It takes countless hours of painstakingly difficult work to refine even a minuscule sample out of literal tons of uranium ore. It's the kind of work that a man like Debierne really couldn't do himself. He was a brilliant researcher, but he was also pursuing multiple studies at any given time. He helped discover that radioactive alpha particles consisted of two protons and two neutrons, for instance. And in collaboration with Marie Curie, he had isolated pure metallic radium. So the daily grind of distilling actinium usually fell upon the shoulders of his lab assistant. It's a bit like how the work made by Jeffrey Koons is only possible thanks to the hard work of dozens of unnamed artists in his Manhattan studio, as we heard about in episode 24. To boot, Debierne held prominent administrative positions, too. For instance, following Curie's death in 1934, he succeeded her as director of the esteemed Radium Institute. But when Marie Curie died, she left behind some of the biggest proverbial shoes to fill in all of science. And she had successors biological as well as spiritual. Her daughter, Rangelio Curie, was a brilliant chemist in her own right and had little difficulty carrying a baton that many would have found burdensome. Many of actinium's properties were yet unknown when Marie died, including the precise length of its brief half-life. Irene worked tirelessly to catalog these attributes. Working with exceptionally pure samples of actinium prepared to highly exacting standards, an anomaly eventually became apparent. Following the isolation of a sample of actinium, its radioactivity would sharply and constantly rise until it finally leveled off after about two hours. Noticing this phenomenon required working with a nigh-unadulterated sample of actinium. Otherwise, radiation from various contaminants would hide the signal in the noise. And that was what led to the discovery of Element 87. Produced after Element 89 releases an alpha particle. Now, Joliot Curie was only half de Bierne's age at the time, but she had a lot going on too. On top of performing Nobel-winning research, she did important medical work, became one of the first women to hold an official position with the French government, and raised a third generation of little geniuses in Hélène and Pierre Joliot Curie. So when she shared the news of this discovery with André de Bierne, her old colleague and family friend, she was actually reporting on the grunt work performed by her lab assistant. 
Nothing wrong with that, per se, it's really just the nature of how this sort of work gets done. In fact, De Beers must have found this whole conversation rather amusing, because all of these heretofore undiscovered secrets of Actinium were old news to him. Entirely coincidentally, his lab assistant had recently made the same discovery in the course of performing research for him. Now, this can set up the kind of conflict that underlies some of the most bitter, long-standing feuds in the history of science. And indeed, this was a terrifically awkward situation. But not because they had each independently discovered a new element. No, what Irene and Andre independently discovered in that moment was that they had both been assigning work to the same lab assistant. Her name was Marguerite Perret, who at not quite 30 years old was already one of the leading minds in the fledgling field of radioactivity, much like Harriet Brooks and the Curies themselves. Apparently, in the course of the entire prior decade, she had simply never mentioned to either of her bosses that she was also working for the other one. Reportedly, upon making the realization, any amusement Debierne may have felt quickly gave way to a rather embarrassing fit of rage. Eventually, presumably after a lot of indignant muttering, the decision was made that neither Debierne's name nor Joliot Curie's name would appear alongside the Discovery's announcement. This one belonged solely to Marguerite Perret. And rightly so. On top of all the elbow grease, she possessed a greater practical understanding of actinium than probably anyone else on the planet. The woman had done so much work with radioactivity that she could have presented a doctoral thesis on the subject. Literally. Not only that, but she probably could have earned some very distinguished medals and prizes, too. There was just one problem. Aside from a technical certificate she had earned ten years earlier, Perret had no scientific bona fides, not even a bachelor's degree. That's a lot of work to catch up on. It's a little harder than scrambling to finish next period's algebra homework during recess. So it took several more years, but she did finally earn her PhD and returned to the Radium Institute as a senior scientist. She later chaired the University of Strasbourg's nuclear chemistry department. She served as a member of the Atomic Weights Commission, and she was nominated five times for a Nobel Prize. Alas, always a nominee, never a laureate, but for once on this program, that actually might be the lesser injustice. You might have wondered why Element 87 is named after France when Gallium already took its name from the country's Latinized name, and Lutetium did likewise with the Latin name for Paris. Even for the 1930s, it feels just a little bit Francocentric. Perret thought so too, it seems, because she wanted to give it the name Catium. She found its position on the periodic table interesting. Not only is it at the bottom of group 1, but no element is more distant from fluorine. And just as fluorine will form negative anions more enthusiastically than any other element, element 87 is tied with cesium for how violently it will react to form a positive cation. 
Julio Curie advised against this name because she believed that the English speakers of the world would think it had something to do with domestic felines. Since, to my great dismay, no such connection exists, they went with the well-established nationalist backup. We element hunters should consider Perret something of a role model. Her entire career was founded on being really, really good at collecting astatine. But you probably don't want to comb through a house-sized lump of uranium or just gather a few errant atoms of francium. There are a few other familiar options, like seeking out esoteric radiochemical medications or pulling the old I'm sure there's an atom or two of francium somewhere in this lump of granite trick, but for the discerning and ambitious collector, there is another way. Synthesis. By performing a little chemical arithmetic using common household materials, we're able to fuse our way to a sample of francium. In 1995, the State University of New York pioneered just such one technique. All you'll need is a bit of gold from an old piece of jewelry or electronics, and some breathable air. Take oxygen atoms from the breathable air, that's element 8, and slam them into the gold, element 79. 79 plus 8 equals 87 protons. Ta-da! Vive la France! Just a couple minor issues of which I am sure you are already well aware. Due to Francium's very brief half-life, your sample would be gone by the end of the day. You could always make more, except for that second problem. You'll need to get your hands on a linear particle accelerator. The price of those things has really come down over the past hundred years, but they still start around half a million dollars. I hear you can get a basic variant 2123 series for as low as 175k, but you don't see a lot of those lying around these days. I don't have demographic data on the listenership's average annual income, so you all might have that kind of cash underneath your couch cushions for all I know. If not, then you'll first need to discover a way to add several hundred thousand dollars to your collection. For advice on that particular subject, you'll probably want to find a different podcast. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. To learn more about the strangeness of Francium's speedy electrons, visit episodictable.com fr. Next time, we'll meet Radon's eminent progenitor, Radium. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton reminding you that if you work with someone for nearly a decade, maybe make an effort to get to know them a little better. <laughs>